Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books and just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. This week's book was a semi-random find at a bookstore following my reading of the book on William Henry Harrison. And I decided that I wanted to know more about Tecumseh and his brother and found, conveniently enough, this book, Tecumseh and the Prophet, The Heroic Struggle for America's Heartland by Peter Cousins, which admirably covers both of the Shawnee brothers. So this should be really interesting. Oh, should be. Well, I read it already. It was very interesting. And this week's book, Cocktail is the Warrior which is one ounce of sweet vermouth, one ounce of dry vermouth, a half ounce of brandy, a half a teaspoon of licorice liqueur, and a half teaspoon of Cointreau. Why the warrior and not the prophet? Because there is a prophet cocktail. Because in my opinion, Tecumseh was the best of the two, and also the prophet gave up alcohol, so we're going to go with the warrior this week. So let's do this. Oh, also, if I mispronounce names, and there's a very good chance I'll be mispronouncing names, I am truly sorry. This is not intentional. Shawnee is not a language I speak, so I'm going to do my best here. So Tecumseh was born in 1768 uh, to Pekashinwao and Pekashinwao was Shawnee, and his first wife had been Creek, so he was actually living in Creek country in Alabama when his first wife died, and he married Metoataski, who was another Shawnee. She had family north in original Shawnee country in Ohio and wanted to rejoin them, so they traveled north to Chill Chillicote, Ohio, and that's where Tecumseh was born. This was prior to the American Revolution, obviously. I mean, things were certainly heating up on the East Coast, but they were not any more peaceful on the Western frontier than they were on the Eastern seaboard. And the French and the British were still convincing the various tribes they needed to take sides. And so on October 10th, 1774, Pukashinwa dies in battle in the Kanawha Valley in Kentucky. His oldest son was 13-year-old Chisikau, was with him at the battle, pulled Pukashinwa back across the Kanawha River into Ohio, and took on the burden of raising his younger siblings, including six-year-old Tecumseh and soon-to-be-born Laloashiga, who was one of triplets born to Matoataski in January of 1775. Now, triplets were seen as an ill luck omen. They, they were not a good thing uh, for, for the Shawnee. Multiple births were not considered propitious in any way, shape, or form. But one of the babies, the, the girl of the three, died shortly after being born, leaving Lalo Ashiga and his twin Kumskaukau as youngest born of Matoataski and Pukashinwao. Tecumseh grew up basically to be everything a Shawnee warrior should be. Uh, he was strong in body and spirit, he had an ingrained moral compass, and no fear of speaking his mind on what he believed was right and wrong. There are several incidents where a party he was traveling with would engage in warfare, and where the usual treatment of captives might call for torture, he spoke out against the practice, saying it was inhumane and beneath the courage of the Shawnee to sink to the depths of depravity required to torture a fellow human being. Where his words failed to persuade, he would bypass the entire argument by simply shooting the captive in the head, sparing them the torture, and taking the life, which was kind of the ultimate end goal of the torture. It's not like people were tortured to bring them back to health or anything like that. The ultimate end goal was death of the captive, so he just cut out that middle section and made sure it was relatively painless. Um, and his reputation for this moral compass, I mean, even very young, was such that no one would argue with him on the matter. They're like, okay, you okay, 
you shot the guy. Done. <laughs> now, conversely, Lalo Ishiga was everything a Shawnee warrior should not be. Um, he, he was kind of slight in build. His, it, he was not strong in spirit. He was very prone to alcoholism and was so inept at hunting that he shot his own eye out with a bow and arrow when he was a child, like six years old. I think he was trying to string the bow and the string sprang back and snapped him in the eye and blinded him in one eye. And to compound his failings as a warrior, he was prone to boasting about things he did not do. So when they were, I want to say when Tecumseh was about 10, some of the Shawnee wanted to go west into Missouri country and his mother went with that group. Now the Shawnee youth were given their own options. So the two brothers ended up staying with his older sister Tecumpiasi and her brother who essentially raised them from that point forward. Now, Lalo Ishiga, that name means panther with a handsome tail. While they were living with their older sister, the name was changed to Lalo Atika, meaning rattler or noisemaker. Basically, the family was saying, we know you're full of it. You're, you're prattling on to hear yourself talk, but we all know you didn't do these things. Spring of 1779, mother goes west. He stays with his sister, and eventually the tribes get pulled into the revolution on the western frontier, keeping up the fighting long after the British had surrendered in Yorktown in 1781. Uh, the fighting in the west would continue for another two years, ending in 1783, and Tecumseh was part of it. I mean, he fought as directed, raided flatboats of pioneers heading west, and tensions continued to rise between the pioneers and the natives. Uh, both during the revolution and after the fact when they just began flooding, the pioneers began flooding the native territories. With the tiny bottle of brandy this time, because I could not for the love of God find my big bottle. And I was like, well, I don't want to buy another big bottle because then that's just more brandy I got to, you know, use up. So we're just going to. Now the author Peter Cousins does a spectacular job maintaining neutrality and reporting just the facts. All right. He's not interjecting any of his own political beliefs. I have no idea what his political beliefs are. He does that good a job just reporting what was. Um, he points out where the pioneers fucked up and where the natives fucked up. And he goes into detail on who commits what atrocities when. And it is important to note that it's not just a matter of white people sweeping in and murdering the innocent. I, yes, this happened. All right. I'm not, not going to disingenuously say that never happened. It obviously happened. There's a, there's a very... Um, obvious example of not, uh, Nadenhutten, which was a Moravian settlement where they had been teaching the, the natives Christians and they had converted a fair number and they were living very peaceably in the, I think this was in Phili or Pennsylvania country, the militia or the, the white people decided that natives were bad at what it basically just massacred everybody for no reason. These were peaceful people. On the flip side, there were times when the Shawnee would sweep in and murder innocents. Um, for example, during the fighting during, I think it was the revolution, Tecumseh had lost a, a skirmish. And so to save face with his men, he attacked a random homestead. I mean, John Wagoner and his family had done absolutely nothing other than be there. That was all they had to do was be there. So there were no real heroes in this saga. Everybody was overwhelmingly human. In, throughout this entire period and all too prone to human foibles of pride and anger and greed. Um, among the most fascinating things in the book is that Cousins goes into great detail reconstructing Shawnee belief systems. There it goes. It turns out they saw us as subhuman too. So 
because hey, we're all just people, right? For all that, Tecumseh himself does not appear to have been a racist, all right? He had many friends and admirers among both the whites and the other tribes. And he had a, that strong sense of right and wrong and fair play followed him. And he made friends easily with both white people and other tribes. And he was very much a leader of men, somebody that was admired and respected. Even people who didn't necessarily like him admired and respected him for the truths he spoke. Now, one of the defining points and kind of a pivotal moment for America's westward expansion was the Battle of Fallen Timbers. This is a stirred cocktail, so I'm gonna stir this really quick and we'll see what happens. Okay, so Battle of Fallen Timbers, that is where future President William Henry Harrison earned his reputation for calmness in the face of combat. Tecumseh earned the same reputation and came out a genuine leader of men. Now, the NATO coalition lost the battle and they were forced into treaties that ultimately led to their complete destruction with dishonest Indian agents and dirty politicians holding the annuities the tribes were promised as ransom unless the tribes signed over more and more onerous land sales, ceding millions of acres of land to the U.S. government for pennies an acre, which the government then would sell to settlers for $2 per acre. And that became one of the, the um, contentious points that Tecumseh argued with Harrison was, hey, we want the going rate. We want that $2 per acre if you're going to sell our land out from under us. Um, now, kept slightly separate from all of this was Tecumseh because he was seen as a very minor leader. He wasn't one of the big leaders of the Shawnee. So he had this very small village that he had founded and led at the Whitewater River in eastern Indiana. And at this time, William Henry Harrison, as the governor of Nor the Northwest Territory, did not yet realize Tecumseh was someone to be reckoned with. And Tecumseh, for his part, was happy to be the chief in his village and to just lead as peaceful a life as he could in this location. It's okay. Maybe it's just the vermouth. I feel like I'm not a huge fan of vermouth. I don't know. I'm not sure if I like this one. Maybe I should have gone with the prophet. Too late now. They didn't really recognize each other, I think, Tecumseh and, and Harrison. But trouble keeps coming because as more and more white settlers come in, the, the Shawnee are losing their hunting grounds and they're losing the ability to hunt because frankly, there's no game left. Uh, the, the fur traders have come in and, and decimated them. Not just the white fur traders, the Indians also recognized the market and would go out and, and overhunt, leaving no game for when they needed to eat. And so it just became this bad problem of starvation and they couldn't get money because they weren't one of the recognized tribal leaders. They couldn't get the, the annuities that the other tribes were getting. And so it became very rough. And as their tribes are losing their traditional way of life, most of the settled Indians turned to alcoholism to combat the depression of their defeat and subjugation to American will. That's kind of where the first the book had three parts, and that was where the first part ends, is this kind of kind of down note, right? People are settled, Tecumseh's more or less settled than as a chief, but there's rampant alcoholism and people are uh, suffering as a result of it. They, they have no hope, no future. You know, they're basically just living on the government dole. And why well, is that a depressing way to live? And that's where we start coming into more about Lala Watika. And the first part of the book didn't cover much of him beyond saying, yeah, he was a f fuck up. He was a failure um, until he was about 30 years old. So winter of 1804, 1805, he's the town drunk. 
He has two wives, which is not uncommon and was definitely permitted in Shawnee culture. He had several children, but he was the henpecked husband. Both wives were overbearing personalities. Uh, illness, malaria, influenza tended to ravage Indian villages during the wintertime. And Lalotica, lacking qualifications and ability to be a warrior, had been studying to be a medicine man. Uh, basically, the only person in the village who even tolerated Lalotica was his mentor and then his brother and the few white friends that he was able to make. And then the mentor died. Uh, and it was in the book and I apparently failed to tab it out so I couldn't, didn't get his name. But his mentor died. And for reasons known only to himself, Lalawatika stops drinking that, at that time. And he starts praying to the Great Spirit for guidance. I mean, his mentor is dead. His life has been wasted. He needs to know what to do now. What is he going to do with his life? Where is he going? And when lighting his pipe from the fire one day, he apparently drops over dead. He just stops breathing. The village assumes that, like many other Shawnee, he had simply drunk himself to death. The customary grave diggers came to cart his body away, lay him out for burial, put him in his burial clothes, you know, face was painted for death. They're digging the grave and he wakes up. And he tells everybody that yes, he died and he has been shown a vision of what death looks like by the master of life and the path he had been on, drunkard and failed warrior, was the path to hell, basically. And like all other paths, there was a chance for redemption, but not if you're drinking. Alcohol was a straight road to eternal torment and burning fires, and he never drank another drop after that. He, he did remain, as far as we can tell, sober for the rest of his life, and he advocated temperance and sobriety for the rest of the tribes. And he announced following his vision that his name was no longer Lalawatika, he was now Tenskwatawa. Tenskwatawa, meaning he who opened the sky for red men to go up to the master of life, or open door for short. Uh, he announced he was a spiritual leader, a prophet for the people, and the only way to redemption was to quit drinking and return to their native ways, return all property gifted to them from the white men, and I mean everything, any clothing had to be handed to the first white person they ran across, if they had been gifted a dog, the dog had to be returned, if there were native wives who had married a white man, the wives had to return to the Indian tribe. And if they'd had children with those white men, they had to leave their children with the white men because they were, you know, half white. So, you know, yes, abandon your children. That makes, I'm sorry, there's a lot of women who are willing to do that. Oh, maybe there were, I don't know. The only thing they were allowed to keep were the horses and the guns. Those were two useful things. But the guns were only to make war against white men. They were not allowed to keep them for hunting. When hunting, the Shawnee must return to bow and arrow. And anyone who disagreed with him were fools and false prophets. Like, no disagreement. You're not allowed to disagree. The prophet has spoken, and this is what is and must be done. And he got converts, quickly, from multiple tribes, not just the Shawnee. He garnered such a reputation as a holy man, as being one who could look into the hearts of people and see evil, that when the Delaware tribe were convinced they were beset by witches, and this was confirmed by their own holy woman, Beata, they asked Tenskwatawa to attend and divine who among them was a witch. And it's not that they didn't trust Beata. They did. She freely said that identifying witches was outside of her ability, and she recommended them to call Tenskwatawa to come in and identify the witches among them. And he promptly came and confirmed the suspected witches as evil, and the witches were immediately condemned to death and burned at the stake. Yeah, so it turns out when they say, hey, we never burned witches in the United States, they just mean white people never burned witches in the United States. The Indians totally did. And much like with white history, 
when one tried to deny it, she was tortured until she confessed and named others. And when the one she named said, oh yeah, it's totally true, I'm totally a witch, he was let go. It turns out people maybe just suck a little bit. And much like the white witch hunts, these also ended with somebody just stood up to him and said, nope, it's enough. You can't have this one. This one's not a witch. And that's when it ended. But he's now recognized as a prophet. And his biggest supporter was his brother Tecumseh. And the two brothers set about creating a space for the Shawnee and other Indians to gather, starting in Greenville, Indiana. Now, the village was technically on the white man's side of the last treaty, but it was nowhere near white settlements, and so it was allowed at first. But as Tenskwatawa begins to amass followers, and it's interesting because Harrison actually saw Tenskwatawa as the larger threat over Tecumseh. Um, you know, some of that good old-time religion, I guess. Um, and maybe it was mostly because Tecumseh was more diplomatic believe it or not. And yes, he was a warrior, and he was, but he was also a very able diplomat. He was very skilled at allaying fears and ensuring the Shawnee in Greenville, as well as all the other tribes in Greenville, stayed peaceful and did not attack white people. But Tenskatawa had this kind of kill all white people creed because they're the ones destroying our land. So maybe, maybe Harrison wasn't wrong in his assessment. I don't know. Eventually, Harrison got nervous enough that he asked the Shawnee brothers what their plans were and was very grateful when they said they planned to move west into the newly designated territory that had been set aside for us to hunt in by our allies, the Manpak of the Potowatomi. They did. They, they eventually went to the, the Potowatomi's lands to the area that had been set aside for them by Manpak and built Prophetstown on the banks of Tippecanoe and the Wabash Rivers. And this was well within designated Indian territory, well removed from white settlements, so this should have been a peaceful, happy thing, right? Should have been. Um, and once Prophetstown was established in 1807, Tecumseh set about building an Indian alliance. And it, but it was rough going with mixed results. Uh, many were willing to listen and there were quite a few com uh, converts to the cause. Thanks to the preachings of Tenskatawa, when winter came and there wasn't enough food, regardless of the intent, people left. Um, because it turns out they don't want to starve when it's an Indian, whether it's an Indian in charge or a white man in charge, they just don't want to be hungry. So they, they left when there was not enough food for everybody. And so the population kind of, of Prophetstown tended to ebb and flow, and Tecumseh was sort of this 19th century version of the Native American Cassandra. Um, he set out to alert the tribes that Americans could not be trusted because he's watching all these treaties that treaties the governor Harrison is forcing on the tribes and recognizing how far back the tribes are being pushed and he's saying this isn't good this is not going to end well for us we're going to end up being demolished if we keep doing this if we don't fight back and push back and nobody listened to him because the tribes are getting their annuities they're getting their payments from the government so they just didn't listen And because they failed to listen, at least the ones in the northwest where he was, in 1811, he set out to the old southwest, meaning what is now not, not southwest like Arizona, New Mexico, but what was the southeastern, what is now southeastern United States, so Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, with the intent of recruiting the four great nations of the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, and Cherokee tribes. And he struck out with every single one of them. All of the tribes believed the Americans would deal fairly with them. 
and Tecumseh, who had hoped to recruit 6,000 warriors to his cause, returned with 30. And when he returned, the Battle of Tippecanoe had occurred and Prophetstown had been burned to the ground. And Tecumseh was not happy about this. All Tenskatawa had to do was keep his head down and not piss off Governor Harrison. And that just seems like that was impossible. They, like Lalawatheka, he'd been that for so long that he didn't know how to shut it down. And so he started spouting off, causing Governor Harrison to react nervously and bring troops to the Indian side of the treaty line. Now, I said it during my review on Henry Harrison, and I'll say it again, Tippecanoe was Harrison's fault. He could have simply ignored the loudmouth prophet and nothing ever would have come of it. Like literally nothing. Uh, history itself might have turned out very differently on many fronts had he simply ignored the prophet at this time. Um, he didn't. That maybe he couldn't. I mean, he genuinely believed that the British were the cause of the native discontent on the western frontier rather than his own shady land dealings and American land grabs. And so he moved his troops into Indian territory, and when the prophet swore to his men they would be victorious, the warriors snuck up on the American encampment and promptly lost the Battle of Tippecanoe. And when the angry warriors confronted Tenskatawa and asked him how they lost, he said it was his wife's fault. Because, of course, it was. Uh, she had failed to alert him to the fact that she was menstruating when helping him prepare his rituals. And as all the Indians believed a menstruating woman could cancel out a man's magic, Tenskatawa's life was spared, although the remaining warriors left in disgust. Prophetstown was abandoned, Harrison and his troops burned it to the ground, destroying the winter stores and ensuring a winter of hardship for the remaining Shawnee. But as angry as Tenskatawa's actions made him, this worked to Tecumseh's benefit, as did Mother Nature. When Tecumseh was making his tour of the southern states trying to drum up support for his pan-Indian alliance, he was followed by a comet, which stayed visible in the night sky during most of his entire 1811 journey. And he tried to use that as proof to the tribes that they should listen and follow him. Although the comet and Tecumseh himself failed to persuade them. He was like, hey, that's following me, you guys. That, that's, there's your proof right there. And they were like, no, nah, it's not, it's not. However, immediately following the news of Tippecanoe, which did outrage all the tribes because, hey, Prophetstown was on the Indian side. What the hell is Harrison doing on the Indian side of the, the treaty line? On December 16th, 1811, the earthquake of New Madrid occurred, which was followed by several months of after aftershocks. New Madrid was such a huge earthquake, it rerouted the Mississippi River. It was that big. This convinced the tribes that Tecumseh may have been right, and people started flocking to his banner. Following Harrison's destruction of Prophetstown, Tecumseh and Tenskatawa became public enemies in the eyes of Washington. Madison was already looking at war with Great Britain, and following Harrison's reports of the Shawnee movements, the two brothers were seen as leading figures in the Indian Rebellion and believed to be Indian agents. Again, the powers that be never once considered their own land grab as a reason for the discontent, the Shawnee discontent with American policies. And as 1812 moved inexorably towards war, Tecumseh reached out to the British. His goal in the advent of British victory was to push the American line back east of the Ohio Valley and historic Shawnee territory. He just wanted his land back for his people. And so with his newfound pan-Indian legions, he intended to make treaties with the British, ensuring native land holdings and kicking the Americans out. That was his goal. 
Again, he had nothing necessarily against white people. He just wanted his land for his people. And there were some British that he got on quite well with, like Sir Isaac Brock, who was the general in charge of British forces in the Northwest at the start of the War of 1812. And their Confederacy moved on apace until Brock's death at the Battle of Queenstown Heights on October 13, 1812, which left Henry Proctor in charge of British forces. He was not nearly as competent as Brock was. And Tecumseh did not get along as well with Proctor as he got along well with Brock. Um, and Proctor was not the leader Tecumseh was. I mean, Tecumseh just commanded respect and was given to him in spades. No one ever questioned his own commitment to the cause and his desire to see Americans pushed east and the lands returned to the native tribes. In 1813, battle lines were drawn between William Henry Harrison and British forces at the newly constructed Fort Miggs, but Proctor was basically incompetent and Harrison was very competent and so Fort Miggs remained. And the, 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 Ohio, the, the Ohio forces never rose to the taunts or attacks by the Indians. And throughout all of the battles up there, the British forces fell repeatedly. And with each defeat, the natives became more incensed as the British basically just kept retreating. And the British kept falling back and ceding ground that Tecumseh believed should be fought and maintained because, hey, that's our land that you're ceding there. Um... And that retreat only grew faster after the Battle of Lake Erie when it became clear that naval supremacy belonged to the United States as well. And Tecumseh essentially called them cowards for continuing to retreat to Canada, but was urged to continue to stand with the British and keep fighting in Canada with the promise that the British would see their lands restored to the Shawnee when the war was won. So with that in mind, Tecumseh and his warriors followed Proctor to the Thames River. And... On October 4th, 1813, Tecumseh had a premonition uh, and suddenly yelled out, declaring that a long knife had shot him. And he grabbed his chest and said he's been shot. And he became convinced that he would not survive the next day's battle. And it's interesting because Tecumseh's movements on October 5th, 1813 are completely known. Uh, we know that he met with Christopher Arnold at Arnold's Woodplank Mill and apologized for his warriors having burned the McGregor's Mills. He had Arnold because he got along well with Arnold. When uh, he had Arnold alert him when he saw Americans approaching by throwing a shovel full of dirt in the air. Tecumseh next pulled up next to David Sherman and his brothers while Sherman was gathering their animals and advised Sherman and his brothers to go inside. There was a battle coming. So again, clearly not a bad guy. He wanted to keep the innocents out of it. Proctor set up battlegrounds on the Thames River, with the British set to fire on Americans while the Shawnee and tribes hid in the Bakmitak Marsh. And that was kind of, they were going to ambush for the march, marsh, while the Americans flooded in. And the British met with the American forces as planned and surrendered after one volley. So they, they got off one shot and then said, we're done, we're done, you guys win, come get us. Leaving the Shawnee to their fate. And the Americans knew the Shawnee were there. They didn't know exactly where, but they knew the Shawnee had to be in the marsh because they knew that the Shawnee were working with the British. So Colonel James Johnson led a Forlorn Hope assault, which a Forlorn Hope basically is a, a suicide mission. All right, they, they, It was intentionally designed to flush them out with the expectation that the people doing the run were going to die. And that was led by Colonel James Johnson, and I think all but two of them did, in fact, die. 
but they that left the remaining 460 men of the battalion to open fire when this gambit worked. So the Forlorn Hope ran in, the Shawnee started firing, revealing their position, leaving the Americans free to fire at will, and they did, and the Shawnee were slaughtered. Tecumseh's last known act, Tecumseh's last known act was to direct his translator, Billy Caldwell, to leave, saying, we must leave, they are advancing on us. So Caldwell fled. Tecumseh stood up, maybe to follow, maybe to fire off another round of his own, and was promptly shot through the heart. I mean, no one d- doubts that he died during the Battle of the Thames. And that's a well-known fact, but it's well-known as his movements are on October 5th, 1813. No one knows the crucial detail of who actually killed him. We'll never know. I think Richard Mentor Johnson claimed credit for it, and he used that as part of his campaigning when he was the um, vice presidential candidate for Van Buren. But we don't actually know who killed Tecumseh. Harrison, on hearing that the great warrior had fallen, tried to ascertain the death with his own eyes. I mean, he had met Tecumseh, he knew what the man looked like, but by the time Harrison was able to review the body on the battlefield, the corpse had been desecrated. It says, be classy like that. Strips of skin had been removed to be razor strops. Classy. And the scalp had been removed in multiple spots as trophies of war. And Harrison was unable to say definitively, yes, that is the body of Tecumseh. He was so unsure that he didn't actually include Tecumseh's death on reports of the battle, uh, of the battle to the Secretary of War. Not, not at that time, because he couldn't swear that that was Tecumseh. I like to think this anecdote is true. This was in the book, uh, quote, a Kentucky company commander chanced upon Andrew Clark still propped against a tree and clinging to life. Uh, Clark incidentally was with the, was with the Shawnee. He he was one of the Shawnees, uh, uh, I think other interpreters actually. Um, yes, Clark gasped, Tecumseh was dead, but the dying interpreter added with a dissembling flourish, Indian warriors had dragged his body away. I hope so. Now, regardless, there's no doubt he definitely died that day. I can't imagine that if he had lived, he would have not come forth and and rallied his troops again. So he died on October 5th, 1813, at the Battle of the Thames. Here was a makes-me cry. I can't help it. Ultimately, the War of 1812 was a draw between America and Great Britain, uh, with the Treaty of Ghent basically returning everything to the status quo. So it was a whole lot of fighting and dying for nothing. The British made a half-assed attempt at getting the Ohio Valley back, but when the the, uh, American ambassadors said, nope, that's not going to happen, they just gave it up without a fight. And Tenskatawa fell to British patronage. So he, the, the guy who had said, we need to stand on our own and we need to be our own people and live our own lives and return to native ways, began accepting charitable donations from the British and spent a decade living off British annuities until Governor Lewis Cass of Michigan saw a chance to remove the remaining Shawnee population from Michigan territory entirely. By this point in time, the greater Northwest Territory had been broken up and where the Shawnee were living was on the Michigan side. He offered Tenskatawa what he wanted, a place to set up a new prophet's town in Kansas, west of the Mississippi River. And Tenskatawa accepted the offer and led his remaining followers to the new territory. So it took him about 18 months to get there just for traveling. He was traveling with a large group of people and 
the Indian agents weren't always honest, although when he got to St. Louis, the Indian agent there, William Clark of Lewis and Clark fame, was very capable and very helpful, helped them to get set up where they were needed to be in Kansas. After Chief Blackhoof died in Michigan, the remaining Shawnee followed Tezcatawa to the new territory, and Michigan was now nominally Indian free. Um, Tenskatawa died in extreme poverty in November of 1836. We don't know the exact date. We know that he was seen by a white doctor about three days before he died, but the doctor, frankly, knew who he was, knew he was the prophet, but thought that he had fallen, basically, fallen from the spiritual path that he had intended, and so did not record the date of death. And thus ended the last holdouts to a pan-Indian Union that was betrayed by the British, and the Americans. Overall, this book was spectacular. It was part history book and part anthropological deep dive into Shawnee culture. Tecumseh was widely respected, not just by the Shawnee, but basically everyone who ever met him, including William Henry Harrison, had nothing but respect for the man. And all he wanted was to live his life as he had been raised to live it. He wanted to be an Indian and be a Shawnee warrior and I, mean, I think he only had like one child and he wanted his son to grow up that way and as much as he could. Um, I don't think he was necessarily anti-progress so much as he did not believe that progress for white people automatically meant positive progress for the Shawnee. Not an unreasonable assumption. And while Cousin seems to believe that Tecumseh always supported his brother Tenskatawa, I'm I'm not as convinced. I don't know that Tenskatawa did believe his brother's prophecies. I, I don't know that he didn't. He certainly could have. I think he saw his brother's newfound spiritualism as a way to bolster his own ambitions for a pan-Indian alliance. And if the fucking British hadn't kept retreating, he might have made it. I mean, the, 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 that last battle at the Thames, the British fired one volley before surrendering to the Americans and just leaving the Shawnee to their fate. And so, I mean, a legend passed from the world in a hail of bullets. And then however much he may have wanted to be a leader of men, Tenskatawa could not fill his brother's moccasins. He just, he didn't, he didn't have it. He wasn't, he was not the leader that his brother was. And the Shawnee lost a great deal more than Tecumseh at the Battle of the Thames. I think the legend that Tenskatawa had built around himself was never borne out in reality. And it was all personified by Tecumseh, who just died far too early and well before accomplishing his goal of a safe country for his people. This book was very good. <laughs> okay, that's it for this week. Um, thanks for sticking with me while I, you know, tried to not cry badly. Let me know what you think in the comments, and um, I'll see you all next week. Bye.